Welcome to the Not Sorry Art Podcast. I'm Sari Shrike, the artist and creator behind Not Sorry Art and Not Sorry Art School. I'm so excited to talk art and creativity with you. So grab a drink, grab a snack, and let's dive in. This episode of the Not Sorry Art Podcast is brought to you by Not Sorry Art School. Not Sorry Art School is my online art school I created two and a half years ago to supplement my workshop teaching when the pandemic hit. It became a really great resource where I could put all of my knowledge about representational painting into one space. We add one new section or demo every quarter to Not Sorry Art School, and you don't have to pay a membership fee. You pay one time, and then you get access to all of the past videos and all future videos. Not Sorry Art School has an online Facebook group where I have office hours every Monday, and I answer questions within the Not Sorry Art School Facebook group. And there's also a wonderful sense of community on there where people will share their paintings and get great consensual feedback. I'm really excited about Not Sorry Art School. So if you're interested, make sure to click the link and check out the about page to learn more about Not Sorry Art School. Hey y'all, welcome back to the Not Sorry Art Podcast. I'm Sari, thanks for being here. Today's episode is about inspiration and more specifically, a bit of a roadmap to how you can hone your own creativity and become inspired. Inspiration feels like one of those really elusive things. We see it depicted in pop culture a lot as this eureka moment that just sort of pops into our head. And while there is a bit of truth to that, we'll get into some of the research in a minute, I largely feel like that's not how it works at all. And for context, I do consider myself to be a very creative person. I feel like I'm really prolific in my practice, but I would say more so prolific in my ideas. I come up with a lot of ideas. They don't always make it to Canvas, but I'm a very ideas person. And I think a lot of this has to do with not just some innate ability, but practices that I've sort of instated in my life and also mindsets that I have around creativity and inspiration. I wanted to share this with you guys. This is also a great episode because I was able to do some digging into the science of inspiration and that was really fun so if you want to listen to an episode about how you can become more inspired some insight in how other people become inspired in some different approaches then definitely stay tuned thanks for being here and I hope you guys enjoy the episode So one thing I think about a lot and I'm always challenging is this idea that creativity is this fixed trait in the same way that curly hair or attached earlobes or brown eyes might be fixed traits. And one of the ways I sort of frame this is by thinking about the influence of the 20th century and one of the ways in particular is how the 20th century, I believe in a lot of ways, was defined by this boom in evolution and genetics, right? We know that Darwin in the what would it, mid to late 1800s came out with this theory of evolution. And as with many scientific breakthroughs, um, you know, the pendulum of this momentum <laughs> of the, you know, finding out how evolution works swung way past you know, maybe what the science was good for. And so we, obviously, it's a twofold thing. It's not a bad thing per se, but it's, you know, on one hand, we have the groundwork for understanding the natural history of the world and science and things like, you know, genetic sequencing that's had amazing breakthroughs in in medical science. But, you know, the other side of this is that we end up with things like eugenics. And eugenics kind of comes from this idea that things like poverty can be passed down. And I know that that's going to seem 
well, hopefully it seems kind of insane to assume that something like poverty can be passed down. But what ended up happening is these things that are really more social constructs, all of a sudden, because again, this pendulum of this discovery of evolution happens, people are trying to pull that science into every aspect of life, right? We have like social Darwinism, which would be an example of this. And one of the things that happen is that things like creativity all of a sudden are considered to be these fixed traits. And you come from a family of of creative people or artists, when in reality, those people may just have an affluent enough lifestyle that things that we deem as leisure, things like learning how to play cello or painting or writing poetry are encouraged or at the very least accessible to people. But I wanted to see if there were any studies that did try to see how much of our creative ability was genetic in some capacity. And a study that I came up with that I thought was really interesting was something that they concluded with this really extensive identical twin study they did in the 1970s. Again, this is kind of an offshoot of the 20th century being obsessed with nature versus nurture, which is again an offshoot of this everything is genetic who we are is predetermined by what we inherit through our bloodline, you know, sort of an off shooting of that. So in these nature versus nurture studies, they were able to send out these tests that these identical twins who had been separated early in life could do at their homes. And one of the tests was an IQ test. Again, not a perfect metric of intelligence, but and the other one was a creativity test in some capacity. And what they determined from all these tests was that intelligence was up to 80% controlled by their genetics, that the twins who had been separated at birth and had different upbringings, their intelligence was relatively similar. Creativity, on the other hand, only had about a 20% link to the genetics. So there was quite a bit more difference in which twin was more or less creative. And they sort of concluded that creativity, more so than intelligence anyways, is determined by by more nurture. Another study that I thought was really interesting was one where they took a group of second graders and they asked them who in the class thought that they were creative and 90% of them said that they identified as creative and then they took a group of high schoolers they asked them the same thing and only about 10% said that they were creative and this has been something that's been replicated and they've also done a test I believe it was through NASA and they actually measured the creativity of young children versus school-aged children and then older children and their score on a creativity test decreased with age and in fact the youngest group which were I believe preschoolers I'll link the study but they were actually scored in sort of this genius level of creative ability of course calibrated for their age which is really interesting. So it kind of gets to the question of, well, is creativity sort of drained out of us? Can we train it back into ourselves? What is the true nature of creativity? And while I couldn't find a clear exact answer as to how much of creativity is just training, certainly people who have studied this for a living have concluded that you can make yourself more creative and in turn you can make yourself primed for more creative inspiration which brings me to our next point which is well where does inspiration come from and I always think in 
like old cartoons in my mind <laughs> and I always think of the idea that someone's just walking along and maybe they're trying to solve a problem and they're pacing and all of a sudden a little light bulb pops up above their head and they've got it and it really does kind of feel like it comes out of nowhere and the science kind of backs that up. There are a couple of different studies that I dove into. A pair of people that you may want to kind of keep your eye on if you're interested in this kind of work is Todd Thrash and Andrew Elliott. They began studying the nature of inspiration in the early 2000s and they have made many studies and they have laid out basically how to come up with creative ideas. But one of the first things they did when they began studying this was they sort of defined, well, what exactly is inspiration? And they said that there are three basic themes or ideas that come with inspiration. The first idea is that you have this spontaneous evocation, which just means that it sort of pops into your head. And the most important trait is that it happens without your control. The next thing is this idea called approach motivation and that you must make your vision happen right now. So you do have a more keyed in idea of what you want. It's not completely spontaneous, but it's this sort of inspiration that you have to stop everything and start working on this. One of the ways I sort of conceptualize this is I remember being a little kid and getting this urge to draw. And I used to tell my mom it was called an art attack and just kind of a play on, on words there, but it really would feel like it was just completely gripping me. And I remember being frustrated as a kid because whenever I had these moments, I could make these realistic little horse drawings. I'm using the word realistic lightly, but for, for me at the time, I would remember being really impressed by these, but the sensation and the emotion behind it never lasted, sometimes not even to the point of completing the drawing. And it was always so random and out of nowhere and way, way, way more infrequent than I wanted. And the final sort of quality or kind of inspiration is transcendence. You can also think of this as sort of that flow state when you are keyed into a creative task and the paint sort of just flows off your paintbrush or you're just writing out the words or whatever that looks like for you but you sort of have tapped into this creative flow or once you're out of it you look back and you know time seems to have kind of disappeared and you were able to come up with a lot of creative work I will say for me this has sort of been the last aspect of creative inspiration that's worked its way into my practice and it took me at least a couple years before I was able to tap into sort of this creative flow state Okay, so we know that inspiration can show up in a couple of different ways and it can look different, but the most important question here is how do I access it? How do I make inspiration happen? And one of the things when I was researching and of course in my own personal life that I can attest to is the more you try to make inspiration happen in that sort of intense bearing down and trying to force an idea out sort of way, the more you try, the harder it is to actually receive that inspiration and it's not to say that the process of obtaining inspiration isn't doesn't require work more so that it requires sort of work in different areas I will explain that but when I think about sort of visualizing what what it looks like to try to bear down and come up with an idea and not get that idea I think of gripping a bar of soap like with wet slippery hands trying to grab it so hard and it keeps popping out of your hand and that the only way to really hold the soap is by like barely, <laughs> like barely gripping onto it. And that's kind of how it feels to sort of try to have creative inspiration. You almost have to like not try. One of the ways of thinking about 
the creative process because now we're going to sort of shift into inspiration as a process, right? It's not just the light bulb moment. It's not just flow state. It's not just all of a sudden you're overwhelmingly motivated out of nowhere, right? That is sort of the result, but a lot of the work happens before that. So you can sort of divide this into preparation and incubation. And preparation is sort of deep diving into things. It's it's exploring new ideas. It's setting up routines. And then the incubation is sort of letting go and inviting peace and quiet into your life. I'll go into it in a little more of a deep dive. But another analogy that sort of struck me as I was writing this is I remember reading or seeing on the internet a few years ago, <laughs> there was this meme and it was someone pointed out that in order to fall asleep at night, you sort of had to pretend to be sleeping. And I, I feel like this is such a good way of describing what creative inspiration looks like. You almost have to be like pretend like you're already inspired and then the inspiration comes. So just like in the meme, it was like a picture of someone curling up into bed and like closing their eyes. <laughs> creative inspiration is like setting up a practice and sort of pretending to be inspired and then the inspiration just hits and it, it it for me feels like a very and everyone's different but a one-to-one -one thing you sort of have to show up do the work even when you're not inspired but you know that it'll come like you know that eventually you will fall asleep you know you know god willing but you you know that if you at night wind down maybe take a melatonin or a tea if you wash your face and fluff your pillow and lay your head down and turn the lights on you have this routine and if you close your eyes and pretend to sleep then it'll happen and that's very much what the creative process or the process to become inspired looks like so one of the ways of looking at this is that we have three basic waves that our brain taps into and when we're sleeping we're in theta it's like a deep restorative state. It's not aware. It's not conscious. And then when we're awake, but we're sort of relaxed, we're, we're waking up, we're showering, we're going on a walk, we're daydreaming, we are in alpha state. Also, meditation is said to be in an alpha state. It's this idea that we are aware and conscious, but we're not really working because when we're working, we are in beta state. And to generate an idea, you need well, all three of these ideas, but when you're awake, you need a mixture of alpha and beta state. And the idea is that to generate an idea, so to be in a position where inspiration can hit you, you have to be in alpha state. You have to be relaxed. You have to be sort of in an open headspace. It's why a lot of times people will say they have their best ideas in the shower. Maybe there's more to it than just what I'm about to say, but part of it is because if you're really busy, let's say you're a mom, you're a caretaker, you work multiple jobs, X, Y, Z, and you find yourself in beta all throughout the day. Well, in your shower, you don't have your phone with you and maybe you just have music on, but you are kind of in a place where you're an autopilot. You're, you're, you've been bathing since you were a wee little child and you're just sort of going through the motions and it allows you to be awake, conscious, and in a place where you can sort of receive those ideas. And I think that's where, you know, people who are falling asleep will keep a notepad next to them because it's also the sort of extreme example of this, this alpha state. And why as an artist, I will try throughout the day to have as many chances to go into sort of this alpha state as possible. And it can be really hard because if you're approaching a deadline and you get to this position where I really need to think of a new idea, our tendency is to sort of keep in 
the beta state, in this working state. But it's really important to continue to invite this alpha state into our practice, whether that's meditating before you start painting, whether that's incorporating a walk at lunchtime so you can completely clear your head. And you can't think, okay, I'm ready for an idea. You almost have to, again, sort of be like pretending, close your eyes and crawl into bed, right? And then the idea sort of hits you. Another example of this before we move on is I used to love this show called Mad Men. And I remember the premise of the show is it's an advertising agency in the 1960s. And this, you know, the protagonist is this creative genius or whatever. <laughs> and he is talking about his process and they're on deadline and things are really hurried. And the team, the creative team is trying to come up with a new idea. And he sort of counterintuitively says, I'm going to take a nap. And everyone's like, what? That's so crazy. Like we need to be working. We need to figure this out. And he explains that it's this stepping back and sleeping that is part of his process. And you can see this throughout the show where this happens a number of times. But of course, he saves a day. He thinks of an idea when he's sleeping or some other sort of alpha state. And to me, I watched this in college and I was just blown away. I was like, oh yeah, naps can be part of the creative process. It's so crazy. And that certainly plays out both anecdotally in my practice and then, you know, according to what a lot of the research says. But let's not, you know bully our poor little beta state our worker be you know the person who does the taxes and all the hard work and gets no thanks beta state is still incredibly important in fact it's important to think of it like this if you want to generate an idea you have to be an alpha that means to get that sort of creative inspiration you have to clear out space in your day for emptiness for play for leisure so that you can receive the ideas but in order to refine your idea you have to be in beta and i'll also add that part of doing the work to get to sit back in alpha or in that more relaxed state is by doing work in beta beforehand. So for me, I always think of it like beta, alpha, beta, alpha, and it goes back and forth and back and forth. And it's that constant appreciation and space for both of those things in balance. And whatever that balance looks like, it's going to be probably different for every person, but it's having a balance of those two things. It's being grateful for both of those states of being and knowing that they each have a purpose in your own creative practice. But while we're talking about brain and brain waves, I think it's important to pivot to a slightly different region of our brain. In this case, we're talking about the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. So this is one of the last parts of our brain to fully form, it's the basically the impulse control part of our brain. This is the part of our brain that we sometimes colloquially refer to as our filter. And it's an important part of the brain, don't get me wrong. But one thing to note is that there was a study by Charles Lim who had freestyle jazz pianists and also freestyle rappers, two groups of people that he sort of deemed as the epitome of this creative sort of genius at work, right? And if you've ever seen like rap battles, you know that like just their ability to come up on the spot with like lyrics that not only like make sense, but rhyme is just wildly creative. So good on him for recognizing those things being really, really creative. But basically he had these people get brain scans as they were engaging in these activities and a part of the brain that he noticed completely shut off was this filter or the the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex so basically in order to access that creativity in some ways we have to turn off this more discerning and judgmental not in a bad way but this judgmental part of our brain in order to sort of more freely access that creative part of our brain 
Okay, but what does this mean in, in English or in layman speak? Basically, the way I interpret this is it's important to have aspects of your creative practice where you don't judge, where you allow things to sort of crop up and then maybe at a different point, you know, you refine with that judgment, but you have to create a space where you can create and open yourself up to inspiration without it. And I think a really good example of this is children. <laughs> and I, I have a seven-year-old right now and he is at peak goober stage or just completely silly. Like his favorite thing to do is just to, we play this game called the what if game. <laughs> and it's, it's exactly what it sounds like. He just makes up the most wildly ridiculous scenario and he encourages me to think of the craziest scenarios and we we ask well what if this happened and it's just ping-ponging back between the most ridiculous answers and he loves it and it's you know he's a seven-year-old boy so it very much veers into no filter you know potty joke territory but it's it's something that children don't have and when I think about the correlation between children both self-identifying as creative and then also in the NASA study scoring really high on the creative charts is I wonder if children are always sort of in this freestyle mode and I can tell you I, I guess just living with one child that's that age that they there is sort of this unencumbered there's no wrong answers sort of mentality. And while I think it's important to develop that filter, don't get me wrong, I wonder if in a creative practice, if we can find the space to not have consequences, right? The filter helps us to keep from putting ourselves in a situation where we've so deeply offended someone or we've committed a social taboo that can result in being you know, expelled from the group or whatever that looks like. But, you know, while that's important, I believe that having a creative practice or having a space where the, even the silliest, most random, potentially embarrassing things are on the table is wonderful. And it doesn't mean that you can't then later go back and refine, but that you have to have a place where there's no block between ideas that pop into your head and the output I know personally having this lack of a filter in certain aspects of my practice has been really helpful and I think it's part of why I'm able to be prolific. And I'll tell you sort of one way that this kind of manifests or like an idea and that is I have my formal bodies of work and then I have studies and I've always liked having both of these things because I sometimes need to see something and not completely co-sign it. And, and then, of course, there's work I make that I don't post at all on the internet. But as someone who my the way I'm an artist just demands a lot of output and visibility is that I found that that's actually been kind of an asset because what it inspires me to do is sort of say, well, I'll just I'll lower the bar. I'll, I'll paint this little strawberry candy that every grandma's had in their purse. And I paint it simply because it, it kind of just popped into my head and felt fun and silly. And then all of a sudden I have this like larger pinata painting with all of those in there because I've made this painting sort of unencumbered. And then later with the filter part of my mind activated, I said, no, wait, that actually is a good idea. And here's why. And, you know, so you can have a body of work where you basically say it's a study. It's not that serious. I'm just playing around. And you sort of create a space where the bar is lowered and you don't have to be as critical for what you put out. So there's lots of ways to sort of do that and that's not the only way. But that's one of the ways I sort of engage in that filterless art making. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the qualities that can encourage this evocation or these spontaneous ideas 
And this was also studied by Todd Thrash and Andrew Elliott. And they were able to determine that there are specific traits that correlate to inspiration. And this is less to say, again, that these are fixed. Things like openness, um, while they've shown that there is some genetic correlation, there's also an argument to be made that it's a lot of it is your family of origin. So again, know that when I'm saying these things, if I don't listen if I don't list traits that you feel like you possess, I'd like to encourage you to know that you can invite these qualities in a creative practice, even if you don't yet have those manifested in different aspects of your life. And I'm saying this because this is definitely something I did. I really struggled in my early 20s with things like confidence and in certain areas of my life, optimism. And as you'll see, those are qualities that are really important to creativity. But what I did was I sort of allowed my creative practice to be a safe space, to test out what it feels like to be an optimistic person, to test out what it's like to be a very open person, a non-judgmental person. And, you know, because of that, I, you know, I've been able to manifest that in other areas of my life where it served me and that's great, but that doesn't have to be the goal. What I'd like to say here is if I don't list off things that sound like you, don't be discouraged it isn't inherently fixed and also this is just this is studies it's not hard and fast this is the soft sciences so it's still you know it's as much art as it is science so anyways let's jump in so of course one of the traits is openness to new experiences so this is someone who would be willing to change routine who is willing to try something new and you know is willing to sort of take the risk of failure along with that openness Another trait that they found incredibly helpful to the creative process and to invoking ideas is intrinsic motivation. So these are people who the most important aspect of this is feeling inspired is the reward on itself. So whether or not you make something that makes you considered a better artist or makes you lots of money or makes you, you know, gets you the status you desire, the inspiration and the creation process of your art has to kind of be a means to an end in and of itself. It's also not helpful for the creative process to be making art just to please other people, which I know I've mentioned this in other podcast episodes, but that's why looking inward and being really adamant about finding things that are exciting for you and enjoyable for you and are just exciting is an important part of the creative process. It can feel incredibly self-indulgent, especially in a culture that values sacrifice for some of the population so you know making sure that you are enjoying it and you're having fun and it's pleasurable in some aspect is an important part of invoking new ideas another thing that thrash and elliot found is that work mastery was an important part so it's not enough to just be open it's not enough to just be curious it's not enough to you know have the that alpha state that relaxed mind state it's also important and even if this happens in beta <laughs> to be working at something. So again, going back to my analogy of, you know, pretending to be asleep is how we fall asleep. Sometimes having a reason to show up in your studio, even without the inspiration, you don't know exactly what body of work you want to make. But you know what? I really like stone fruit and I really like wash. So every day I'm going to sit down and I'm going to paint a different stone fruit and I'm going to do that for three months. And, you know, you may not be excited about all that. It sounds interesting enough. You don't mind doing it. But it's not what you would identify as creative inspiration. But when you show up every day and from, you know, 1 to 2.30, you sit down and you paint, it's in those moments that the inspiration will show up. It's not guaranteed it's going to be right away. It might take 
weeks or months or even years, gosh. But it's this idea that inspiration will find you if you're already showing up and doing the work. Another aspect of this that I found really helpful in my practice is sort of this idea of keeping a promise to yourself. And that is, you know, for me, it was just showing up and doing a little bit of work every day and not breaking a promise to myself. So instead of saying, oh, well, I'll get, I'll, I'll make art when I'm inspired and then never being inspired and then never showing up, this ends up sort of fostering the sense of distrust with yourself. And I have found that there are some emotions personally that really aren't conducive for creative inspiration. Resentment and mistrust are a couple of those. And sort of on the other side of things, trust and really deep gratitude have been two emotional states that I found incredibly helpful for my practice. So by learning to trust myself that even if I don't make a masterpiece, even if I don't make something good, you know, whatever that looks like, as long as I'm willing to show up and make space for myself and let myself have a creative practice, which has always been one of my goals, that by fostering a trust with myself, an ability to show up, that the creative inspiration will then trust me. I know we're getting woo-woo. If you're wondering, there's a book called Big Magic that dives into this a little bit and we're venturing away from some science. But I found that that's been radically helpful in my own practice. So, you know, if sitting down three hours a day isn't something you can promise, even if you're, you know, you're setting that goal with the best intention in the world. If that's not something that's actually accessible for you, it's more important that you build that trust with yourself. So maybe all you do is every day you go on a walk and you take a picture of found art and you do that for three months or a year or the two years or maybe the five years your kids are really little and you just develop a really good eye for things. And then when you do have the space to sit down one or two hours every day, maybe you pick up those oil brushes and now you can make that promise. And because you've built that sense of trust in yourself and hey, maybe even an eye for, you know, composition, (laughs) because you have that trust, I find that inspiration tends to trust you a little more because you foster that. And of course, gratitude also being an aspect of that. I think it's just magic in life in general. So being grateful, you know, whatever that looks like for you, I won't drone on about that, but that's what I found to be really helpful. And the two traits that Thrash and Elliot single out as being really harmful to evocation or sort of receiving that inspiration is competition and fear of failure. And I think that those are interesting traits to sort of bring up. And yeah, I can tell you sort of that the minute something becomes a competition what you make feels very limited I don't think I see too much of that happening but that sort of gets to that comparison and sort of the idea that the validity of your creative practice or your inspiration somehow hinges on what other people think and again if you can invite in that ability to sort of I'm making art because it makes me happy I'm inspired to create stuff because I'm interested and I deserve a creative practice and if your inspiration and your motivation come from those things then I think competition becomes something that you don't have to think about very much I always hesitate to sort of call out this idea of fear of failure because we know that for for some people you know failure is a lot more hostile than for others if you don't have like a safety net or a partner who can support you or parents or you know you belong to a marginalized identity to where failure is less acceptable then it's you know I understand that I think that's why it's important to realize that things like a creative practice are are impacted by a very unfair world and who gets to be artist is also obviously impacted by that 
But all that to say, if you have the space in your practice to sort of tackle fear of failure, I think it's a worthy thing to do. Part of why I believe our practice was so incredibly healing for me and I've seen it in other people is because it kind of became, especially in my early practice, this place, this one aspect of my life where I could fail and there wasn't too much of a consequence. It was a bummer. And once I got over that perfectionism, it was, you know, a proportionate bummer. It was a waste of, you know, I use waste lightly, but at worst, it was this waste of a good hour and a half nap of my child and I didn't come up with anything worthwhile. But in context of the rest of my life, you know, we were living when I started my practice, very, very paycheck to paycheck. And, you know, I had a young child and the stakes are just high in other aspects of my life. And so I found it a big relief to sort of give myself the love and space to be like, if I don't make something great, it's going to be fine. Like I'm not going to end up on the streets. Um, I'm not going to, my, you know, my, my easel isn't going to explode and envelop me in, in, in flames. Like it's, you can deal, you know, you can work through the heartbreak and sort of it gives you the opportunity to work through that. But I think it's important to note that if fear of failure is something you're grappling with in a really big way, that even if you're doing everything right, that might be something that's sort of impeding your ability to sort of uh, evocate or like create spontaneous new ideas. So to sort of summarize that, the four things that are important to remember is to try not to pressure yourself. I know, easier said than done, but try to not will yourself to come up with ideas. Instead, set up practices that support you and support all of these other sort of goals and metrics. So what that might look like is carving out a little bit of time every single day and being okay if you for weeks, months, years, don't come up with anything that meets your expectation and saying that the idea of being someone with a creative practice is valuable and I deserve it (laughs) and sort of having that intrinsic motivation of, well, even if I don't come up with something amazing, I deserve the ability to sit down every day and play with colors and and, and I get that and and the pressure's off and if all that's all I do, then that's great. I think that's one really important part of the process. The other thing that can be a really good part of your process and a way to not pressure yourself is to sort of invest in tangential interests. (laughs) And okay, what I mean by that is like, you don't always have to see the connection. Sometimes you do. Let's say, again, you're you're wanting to paint these fruit, you know, and you want to do something with fruit and you don't know what, and you haven't made that connection yet. Well, maybe you start painting grocery store aisles or you start doing plein airs in peach orchards or, or something. I don't know. I'm making up a pretty flimsy example on the spot. But let's say that, you know, you find a way or you start cooking with these fruit that you're inspired to paint and it's related enough that you are building upon a base of knowledge that you can then tap into in your main creative practice, but it's not so similar that you're sort of banging your head against a wall. Because again, we know, hopefully at this point in the episode, that that doesn't really work. You can't just slam your head into your your easel and sort of hope an idea comes out, (laughs) that you actually have to let off the gas. But if you still want to be busy, if you still want to be working, which is important to the process, you can't just give up and just completely nap. The other part that's really important is that you're doing something else. And this also can be just really random. So like an example of this is in both of my pregnancies, which is really random, I 
loved watching old commercials from like the 60s, but mostly like the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And the weird thing about it is like I am not interested in this whenever I w- I'm not pregnant. It's, it's the weirdest thing. Anyways, but I found them like comforting, but also they were really illuminating in I was drawn to them just because I was drawn to them. They were like weirdly comforting. With both of my pregnancies, I found myself really craving my parents, but my parents are just not available. So a weird way of connecting is I watched commercials and (laughs) so random. Anyways, it was part comforting, but it was also part illuminating because it showed me sort of these cultural tropes, right? Commercials are really good at sort of condensing cultural narratives a lot of times you know you only have 30 seconds you know 60 seconds of airtime, and so you have to pick up on tropes and ideas that are already sort of permeating the zeitgeist to do the best to communicate an idea and ideally sell a product right so I ended up sort of finding a lot of the tropes that have become a little more taboo in recent years but it doesn't mean they're gone just because we don't have commercials about these things that are the same kind of right out it doesn't mean they're gone it just sort of has changed form and I you know optimistically I sort of hope that we've progressed past some of those things but it helped me through a way that I'm already interested in which is consumer goods to find these different tropes that ended up helping me in my art and I definitely pulled from them in sort of the next stage of my creative practice but it started out just this sort of tangential random sort of interest that I was then able to use to come up with ideas and so all I'll say here is lean into your interest lean into the other things that excite you lean into other creative practices as a way to sort of put in work without again sitting on your easel and banging your head against your canvas (laughs) We're almost done here, but the last three things. The second thing is get into a good headspace of optimism and self-esteem. So this is another thing that Thrash and Elliot really emphasize is the two specific traits of optimism and high self-esteem are really helpful. Now, it doesn't mean you have to live in these spaces all the time, although it's probably a good goal to work towards if they made a point to really identify these two traits. But they found that when you aren't in a a headspace of of creative optimism and good self-esteem, that we really have a hard time getting that inspired headspace that's going to help us come up with new ideas. And so, again, this is one of those easier said than done. Some people, it takes years and years of therapy to get to a place where they have optimism. But my sort of short advice for this would be, even if it's not something you feel like you can have access to in your entire life, by creating a space to allow those positive traits in, you know, again, optimism and good self-esteem, just in your creative practice, that can be really helpful. But optimism and self-esteem are good things to sort of remember that are helpful for your creative practice, not only to sort of cultivate those things if that's accessible to you, but also if you find yourself in a space where you're really not in that headspace, maybe giving yourself a pass and just letting yourself take a break and really tend to your needs. This is something we just mentioned a little bit, so I will be brief, but doing something task related. Again, this is sort of adjacent creative tasks or, you know, interests. Um, You know, right now I'm really into the Chicago World's Fair. I've been watching like documentary after documentary on it and it's, it feels random and I, and like after years of being an artist, I know it'll like find its way into my work, whether it's a prominent way or a really small way allowing myself to sort of have these other random niche interests 
is a part of the process. A one metric I sort of wanted to bring up here actually has to do with playing chess. A while ago on Netflix, there was a show called Queen's Gambit and it was a chess show and it was, it was interesting, it was great, but it kind of led me to ask how many different ways are there to play chess? And the answer was incredibly interesting. So I like to think about this because sometimes it can feel so limiting thinking, well, there's nothing new I can offer. Everyone has already painted everything. There's nothing new under the sun. And I get that. And there's, I think there's a grain of truth to the whole, there's nothing new, but I don't think that it's okay to sort of just say, well, there's nothing new. So why try to find something new? I believe the pursuit of finding something novel and interesting is a worthy pursuit. And I think also think it's important to remember that we live in an age of social media and it just happens to have an incredibly homogenizing effect and getting back to the chess of it all when i google how many different chess outcomes are there if you include illegal chess moves supposedly it's 10 to the 111th to 10 to the 123rd power which is just an ungodly huge number if you rule out all illegal chess moves it's 10 to the 40th power which is I don't even know if there's like a alien word for it, but it's an absolutely massive number. To sort of give you context for what 10 to the 40th looks like, there are only about 10 to the 15th power total hairs on all the human heads in the world. And there are only 10 to the 23rd grains of sand on earth and about 10 to the 81st atoms in the universe. So it is just with chess and here's the thing about chess is it's limited right you only have so many little guys on a board and you only have so many moves that each guy can do and yet when you factor in all of those different moves and all the different variables you get an absolutely enormous number of different ways different outcomes and so i think about how many different mediums there are and how many different ways of seeing color there are and how many different landscapes and approaches and styles there are and then how many different people there are with different perspectives and I can't help but think that when you think about all the different ways you can make a painting you know we'll even just narrow it down to one medium that you have probably an ungodly way number of ways that your painting can turn out and so I do think that there's value in pushing yourself and and not just perusing Pinterest and picking a cool thing and sort of tweaking it ever so slightly and calling it your own. I think that there's a lot of value to really cultivating a creative practice and cultivating the emotions and the right reasons, the right intrinsic reasons to have a practice and really making it your own, that it's rewarding. You don't want to carve out all this wonderful, beautiful space to make art just to take someone's art and slightly tweak it a little bit. Like you deserve what the creative process looks like and this like wonderful feeling of coming up with something that's totally unique and new. And again, there's nothing entirely new in the world, but even if you use, you know, even if you start sort of in this place where you're making art that looks like Pinterest art, it's worth it to sort of cultivate a practice because at some point in your career, you, you definitely deserve the ability to come up with something new. And the last point that Thrash and Elliot say is helpful for the creative process is to develop your skill. And I always think of this as like the waiting room for creativity. Again, it's that idea that you work and you sort of show up and the art kind of the inspiration hits you when you're already working, but also because developing a skill puts you in a position where you're in the weeds, right? You know, when you, t you take on a new 
creative project, whether that's ceramics or painting or learning to play something, whatever it is. And at first you're like, wow, I'm getting the hang of it. And then you all of a sudden hit this area where you are starting to learn how much you have to learn. I really believe in the value of if you can, I know everyone is different and some people like to just skip from creative practice to another. And I think that that can be valuable and there's no wrongs here, but I have found a tremendous amount of reward and kind of sticking to one thing and not because sticking to one thing means that you will have success in that one thing, but more so because learning how to get through a challenge like developing a skill and the slow, hard labor that goes into that is a wonderful teacher and it's a wonderful way to sort of grasp an aspect of the creative practice in a way that doesn't sort of rely on this just random inspiration landing in your lap. It gives you something to do in seasons of life where you don't have access to that inspiration. And I definitely could go into this longer. I definitely am planning to make a video on sort of indefensive skill because <laughs> it feels a little... Not so much, but a little underappreciated at the moment. But I will say that it's important and it's worth the effort to try to be consistent with something and learn what you can from the labor that it takes to go into a skill. Okay, hopefully that was a, a good episode and being a little longer than I anticipated. But I really wanted to get into the weeds and sort of give you sort of a guide map as to how to approach creative inspiration and sort of the nature of it and obviously this is sort of a survey level podcast about inspiration you can definitely deep dive I'll link some of my resources and you can look into those for yourself it's definitely worth perusing and I'll link some of my favorite books about creativity because this is something I've been interested in for a very long time but thank you for listening hopefully that was enlightening to you in some way if you'd like to leave a review it's really helpful because it gives me some feedback lets me know how I'm doing and also for newer podcasts like the not sorry art podcast it helps me in my ranking in the apple store helps me get seen find new people so if you could do that I would appreciate it and if you leave a review I can read off your art account in the episode thank you again for being here happy creating and have a wonderful rest of your day